Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Wow, great scripture reading. Thank you. You could tell she had been in that passage to be able to bring the right uh, emphasis at the right place. Thank you. Hi, North Mountain. Good morning. I don't know if you heard, it's going to be really hot. Did you hear about that? That's why it's hard to preach hell in Arizona. No one's, no one's intimidated, you know? It's like, what else you got? Yeah, 120. Wow. Think of second service. You know, they're going to walk in, and the parking lot's going to be sticking to their shoes. I mean, it's... Are we prepared for that, brother? We got something out here, some folks... Anybody uh, go to church when you were a teenager and didn't know what was going on? Anybody have that experience? Yeah, the pastor. Maybe you did. Uh, this is participatory, by the way, so it's okay to yeah. say enough, I'm done, whatever you need. Yeah, so I went to church in Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm a native. And uh, at our church in Scottsdale, I went to Scottsdale High, which uh, they closed up. It's now just a sign somewhere on Indian School and Miller. Uh, I guess they looked at the alumni record and said, this isn't working. <laughs> Shut that down. But uh, going to church, I remember sitting there. where I'm in pews, oldest of four boys. My mom, we're all there punching each other, being wiggly and obnoxious. And, uh, and the, the pastor's wearing a robe, and uh, they're chanting the liturgy. So he's, and they're stained glass. And it was like, when is this over? I want to get out of here and get back to life. I don't know what this is, but this doesn't feel like something I want. If someone had said to me, Sandy, would, uh, would you want to be a pastor when you grow up? Like the last option, right? Maybe before mortician would be that. I don't know. If you are one, I'm, I don't know anything about that profession. I'm sorry. <laughs> then, went off to college, big hole in my heart. What's this all about? There was a, an old song, uh, Is This All There Is? 
And uh, that was kind of what was going on in my heart. Is, is this all there is? So I go to college, and I get a degree, and then I get a job, and then I get a wife, and I get some kids, and a mortgage, and then I die, and that's it, huh? That's what it's all about. So there's this, this question churning in my heart while I'm trying to do things, achieve things that might fill the hole. And then Jesus showed up. Wham! And I'm so glad. I mean, he just grabbed this uh, pathetic little frat boy by the scruff of the neck and shook me and said, I'm real, I'm alive, and you're mine. And I'm so grateful. I mean, he, he made it clear. He's real, he's alive, and he wanted me. And I said, I'm, I'm all in. Let's go. Uh, took down the picture, the poster of Smoking Joe Frazier that I had on the outside of my wall. Anybody remember Smoking Joe Frazier, the boxer? Are we playing together today? Come on, guys. <laughs> so, you know, Muhammad Ali, he was part of that generation of boxers. Took that down, put a verse up, Ephesians uh, 5.18, don't be drunk with wine in the fraternity, really. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. I was sure they are going to have a special meeting to vote me out because I was the president, and now I'm this weirdo Jesus guy. Uh, led my girlfriend to Christ a few days later, who's still with me, bless her heart, Margie, you know, it's my wife. But uh, I went back to my church, that church I told you about, all fired up. Jesus grabbed me. I, I've been filled with the Spirit. I, I see the whole world difference, like I finally got the right prescription for my glasses, you know. It's like, he is, it's real, and it's all about him, and let's go. And uh, at the place where I'd been followed up at campus at ASU, when you went into that building, there were signs on the wall. Win, build, send. Win, build, send. You've been one to Christ to be built up, to be sent out. And then I came into the church, and it looked like the signs were, sit down, soak, and sour. I mean, just look at the people. Look at their face. Look at them checking their watch. And... Uh, I said, I don't want any part of this. Whatever this is, Lord, this doesn't feel like you. Where's the life? Where's the passion? Where's the fire? Uh, what's happened? What happened, you know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus called 12 guys around him, and, and best we know, all but John, who will look at his words, were martyred, were killed. Too afraid to be at the cross, except for John, who was with Jesus' mother. They're all running to protect their hide. And now, after the resurrection, they're preaching with boldness, even at the cost of their life. What happened? And, and that fire was passed on to the early church, and it spread around the world. But something got diluted, right? Something got institutionalized, organized. Uh, practical, accessible, something you could fit into your busy life to make you feel okay with God. Sunday, we'll, we'll manage God on Sunday. Come to church on Sunday, we'll tell you how to, how to be okay with God, how to manage God so you can do what you want the rest of the week. And if you did something you're a little nervous about, we'll just come deal with it here and then you're good. <clears throat> and now there's no fire, no passion who would want to be part of that? It's not new. As we're going to see, John, right in the beginning, in the church, there was this, this movement to cheapen 
that which costs God everything. Cheap grace. The, the guy who coined that phrase, as best I can tell, is uh, one of my favorites, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he, he was living during the time of the rise of Hitler to Nazi Germany. He was a brilliant young theologian and pastor, and his friends sent him to the States so he wouldn't get killed by Hitler, but he, he couldn't abandon his countrymen. He came back. He ended up being part of a movement that tried to assassinate Hitler, got arrested, and was executed at age 39. Uh, but his writings sustained the fire. Uh, uh, this one's really good. No, I'd be careful with this one. I, I wouldn't read this if you're just real happy where things are at. I mean, status quo is just good and working, then don't pick this up. This, this book's dynamite, The Cost of Discipleship. But, uh, oh, thank you. You're way ahead of me. Here's what he says about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So it was a problem in his time. It was a problem I saw when I went back to my neighborhood church in Scottsdale. John says, oh, Sandy, it, it's been a problem from day one. This desire to, to manage God, to find out what's the lowest common denominator, what's, what's the, the minimum. What, what is the, the minimum requirement? Well, I'm saved by grace. Oh, that's, that's so true, and yet that's become a cliche that people slap on their guilty conscience. What is the gospel? That's really what's at stake. And Bonhoeffer saw that it was ruining the Lutheran church. In his day, the pastors, can you imagine, were paid by the state. Well, you're going to get some prophetic sermons out of that deal, aren't you? You know, no one's going to rock the boat. You know, Uncle Sam or Uncle Dietrich's paying my check, so I'm going to say what keeps me in good graces with the powers that be, and that's what Hitler did. He, he wooed all the pastors, and Bonhoeffer said, I'll have no part of that. But my point is, from early on, there's this very human temptation to make cheap what costs God everything. And, and the cost to you and I Cheap grace really isn't cheap. It costs you passion. It costs you zeal. It costs you joy. It costs you a sense of calling and purpose, which is what Christ wants to give you. It's, it's Christ, the living Christ, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And that's what John wants us to, to wake up to as we step into 1 John 3. Can you look there with me? Remember... Uh, his tone, the tone of this epistle, it's a sweet tone. He's old and uh, he's got perspective. He's full of grace in his relationships with others. Uh, and he's got kind of the big picture thing. So there's not 42 things he wants you to get from his epistle. There's just a few. One is that God is love. We love because God first loved us. The nature of God is love. God cannot do anything outside of his fundamental character of love. So everything he's doing in your life, his motivation is always love. It's always your best interest in mine. God is light. 
There's no darkness. Light always overcomes darkness. Darkness can't overcome light. Light always overcomes darkness. God has overcome in sending Christ to the light of the world. You and I are now the light of the world, and Christ is coming back, and he's going to light up the whole universe with his leadership and, and presence. So God is love, God is light, and then his other simple message is, if you know him, live like it. If you know him, live like it. For your own confidence in your faith and for the witness to others, if you know him, live like it. Look at in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's, that's just so mind-blowing. Uh, you are a child of God. You're not just a convert of God. You are his child. You're in his will. You're part of his family. He's going to keep you with him forever. He's never going to abandon you. He's never going to say, I I'm breaking this family relationship. He, he won't do it. You're his child. No other religion does that with God. In his family, in his inheritance, in his kingdom. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that the world doesn't know him. You are the beloved, God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So, there's so much more to you that is hidden. That's how Paul put it in Philippians. He said, uh, or Colossians, he said, your life is now hidden with Christ and God. That is the real you, the fully released, expressed, beautiful, amazing you. That all those longings in your heart that you can't quite get to experience in this life. This life just doesn't quite come through for what you really long for. Whatever it is, your work, your marriage, your kids, your own plans for your self-improvement, you just quite can't pull it off because this life is broke, it's fallen. But the real you is coming, dear son, daughter. Wow, it's coming. And we will be like him. And this hope purifies us, verse 3. Then our passage. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know, he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. All this great theology packs in there. Jesus came, he's God in the flesh, he was fully man, but in his deity he was without sin. So he felt the pull of sin. He wasn't immune to the, the temptation of sin, the drawing of sin, but he didn't succumb. And so he could take away sin for you and I. No one then who abides in him keeps on sinning. If you keep on sinning, then, well, you don't know him. You don't know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. John, let's throw up. I got a picture of John. You didn't know he had... Uh, Actually, that's an artist rendering. We don't have a photograph of John. But uh, I'm sure, you know, all really godly guys are losing hair on the top of their head. <laughs> you observe that. That's probably what he looked like. 
What are, you'd love to just sit with that guy, wouldn't you? And have a cup of coffee and say, John, what was it like being with Jesus? What was it like hearing truth from his lips, hearing his laugh, seeing the fire in his eyes when he cleared the temple, John? What, what was it like, John, to be at the foot of the cross and see the one you, you love being tortured like that? What's it like, John, seeing the church explode from a few brave little disciples to a movement? It'd be great to have coffee with John. That's coming. That's on the other side. But his concern is deception. See that? Little children, verse 7, don't be deceived. The devil, who comes up in this, yes, we really believe in a devil. Uh, there is a malevolent personal being who is uh, powerful and gifted and has uh, caused a rebellion. And yet, as uh, Job and other passages tell us, he still has access some way to the presence of God. And his, his rule is under the sovereign rule of God. Mind-blowing stuff, isn't it? Why do you think the world can never get it together? Why can't we just get better and better and be nicer and nicer? Because there is a being who is deeply committed to our destruction and deception. Deeply committed. And he's so good at it. So good at it. So his deception, as he started with Eve in the garden, really, yes, we believe in a, a first family. And that first family was deceived. He planted the idea that you couldn't really trust God, that God is, is not who you think he is, that he doesn't really want your best. He's hiding something from you, and so you can't fully trust him. So here, eat what he told you not to eat because he's holding out on you. Deception. He's still doing that. He, he's still deceiving the church. He's deceiving you that uh, you're not doing enough. You're not okay. You're not performing enough things to really be okay with God. That's at one end of the spectrum. The other deception is, oh, you're fine. You're saved by grace. You prayed a prayer, right? Back at that junior high camp, didn't you pray that prayer? You're, you're good. You're in. Do what you want. It's good you go to church and help out. That's, that's good. It makes you feel good. See the two extremes, both deceptions. And John says, don't fall for that. Particularly, don't fall for this deception that somehow how you live doesn't matter. It's the evidence that you really know him. Luther said you are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. You're not saved by works, but saving faith works. It just goes together, and we've... we've been deceived into thinking that it doesn't matter how I live. I'm forgiven. I actually had a, a man come into my office when I was pastoring who was going to tell me that uh, he found the real love of his life, married, of course, with a family, but now he'd found the real love of his life and, and kind of thought, you know, I think God led me to her, and I know it's, he doesn't want divorce, but he'll forgive me. I mean, it was, it was just like, what? What gospel did you get sold? Some gospel that you just, 
All Jesus wants to do is just walk around with a smile and just forgive people. Yeah, that's fine. I forgive you. I forgive you. Just nice Jesus, just forgiving you. Even unbelievers know that doesn't hold any water. That's not attractive. That, that has no real life to it. Just walk around and say, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. God loves everybody. It's all good. We all go to the same place in the end. That's a deception. That's what he's about. John says, don't, don't be deceived. The evidence of you having the life of Christ in you is that you practice righteousness. You see that word practice? It's all through here so many times. Verse 4, practice sinning. Don't practice lawlessness. Uh, verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever practices sinning is of the devil. Uh, practice, the last verse, uh, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Practice, it, it means the things you give yourself to. Practice. There was a, a basketball player back in the late 90s, uh, Allen Iverson. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Raise your oh, Now you're responding, you know. Ask you about your faith. Well, I don't, I don't know about that. Oh, yeah, basketball, baby. I'm in. Come on, talk to me about it. Yeah, Albert, Allen Iverson. Uh, he was only six feet tall, about 165 pounds, and he took the NBA by storm. They called him the answer. That's uh, the answer. That'd be a great nickname in basketball. Who's that? That's the answer right there. And, uh, but he, uh, he was an urban guy and had a lot of attitude, uh, was into hip-hop music and uh, hip-hop crowd, and so he didn't go to practice much. Didn't see, you know, practice, I'll, I'll show up for the game and do my thing, but what's the deal with practice? And so it became, a throw up the slide here, are we talking about practice? The reporters asked me, it's, Alan, they say you're not showing up for practice. Coach is kind of ticked with you. Are we talking about practice? In fact, uh, there's a video. It's just too fun. I got to play it. Let's, let's play the video. Come on. Here we go. We sitting in here. I supposed to be a franchise player, and we in here talking about practice. Come on. You can we move with this. It's all right. I supposed to be a franchise player, and we in here talking about practice. We sitting in here. I supposed to be a franchise <laughs> oh, player. That woke up a couple guys. That's why I did that. Wow. Practice. It, it's almost like there could be some people in John's church saying, John, you talking about practice? You talking about practice? Like what I do? See, remember, who you are now is who steps into glory. You understand that? Some folks think, well, when I die, I get zapped. I get, the, I get the computer chip that makes me a holy woman, a holy man, and I'll know everything. And so, well, if that's the case, and you're right, this doesn't matter. Practice doesn't matter. But if it's you, unencumbered by sin, a new body that now doesn't have all the, the deathly pulls to self-deception deception and destruction, but it's still you, dear one. It's still you. That's why Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, you know, going to the gym has some benefit, but practicing righteousness, godly disciplines and habits has benefit for this life and the life to come, because it's you that will wake up on the other side, you. So whatever you've been practicing now will serve you on the other side. If you haven't been practicing righteousness here, you're going to be in preschool on the other side, you understand? Because it's you. It's you. 
But practicing righteousness, desiring to live a godly life, desiring to uh, say no to my flesh so I can say yes to him, that's practicing righteousness. That, that's waking up every day and asking the question, uh, Jesus, what am I doing today because you asked me to? Do you ever ask yourself that? What are you going to do this week specifically because Jesus commanded you to do it? Anything? Anything? Christ impacts uh, everything for me. Uh, my marriage. I I'm not an easy guy to be married to. I'm real selfish, real easily distracted. Margie can be pouring her heart to me, and all of a sudden I'm checking, what's that on the TV? Or, what's the dog doing? Uh, I just got a lot of flaws. Hard to be married to me. So I'm asking Jesus all the time, oh, Jesus, what am I not seeing? Why do I keep doing this? Help me to break through. So he's with me all the time in my marriage. He's with me in loving my children and grandchildren. With grandchildren, there's just a lot of worship. Oh, look at her, Lord. Heidi, four years old. Just, oh, Papa, I love you. <sighs> yeah, why? So sweet. Just praise to him all the time. Look how you made her. Look at that curly hair. Look at those eyes. All the time. My money. Where do you want me to spend my money? Is this, is this uh, just too indulgent? What ministries do you want that I could be helpful to right now? My entertainment. What I do when I'm tired and just want to flop on the couch? Lord, is there something? Man, we speaking of that. Have you guys seen the uh, Sounds of Freedom? Anybody seen that movie, Sounds of Freedom? Okay, you better get to it. Get to the theater and see it. It's, uh, it's not easy to watch. It's about child sex trafficking. It's a true story of a Christian man that worked for the, the feds and decided to rescue a couple kids. Uh, Jim Caviezel, who was in Passion of Christ, plays him. It's a, it's a powerful film. Interesting. Uh, Hollywood wouldn't let him get it produced for about five years. That's interesting. But uh, it's out, and it's uh, competing with Mission Impossible in the theaters, and they didn't spend anything like what Cruz spent on his money. Uh, go see that. But entertainment, what's my call and purpose? When I'm suffering, when things are hard, when I lose something, when a relationship breaks, where do I go? To him. Christ is in everything of my life. That's what it means to know him. And it's not because I'm so spiritual and godly. It's just what happens when, when you know him. See, look, uh, look at verse 9. No one who is born of God. Jesus said it to Nicodemus, who was a righteous religious man, keeping all the rules, but he knew that Jesus had something he didn't have, and Jesus said, I'm sorry, Nicodemus, I can't, you know, I can't give you a pill. Uh, we can't just pray a prayer because the Spirit's got to cause you to be born again. And I don't know, the Spirit's like the wind. Don't know where he's going to show up. He showed up for me in that, that frat dorm. Showed up for you, lots of stories here. But the, the Spirit has to give you new life in Christ. That's why uh, you, you can't manipulate it. 
And that's why you don't want to force someone to pray a prayer or receive Christ if the Spirit's not working. Because it'll just be an empty act that will push them farther from Christ when they see that there was nothing to this. You, you need to be born of Christ. Look at the rest of that verse 9. God's seed abides in you. When you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit is put inside you. He, uh, he lives in you. That's why I'm preoccupied with Jesus. It's not because I'm a professional Christian. It's because the Spirit just keeps bringing him up. Just keeps bringing him up. Just keeps being there in the background. In friendships, in tears, in prayer. He does it. He causes you to be born and plants his seed. And that's why uh, those who know him just can't stay in that habitual sin. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. Uh, remember, if you could turn back to the beginning of this wonderful little epistle, he says to us, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth isn't in us. So John's not saying Christians won't sin. In fact, he says, be honest about your sin. And when you sin, then confess it and restore that relationship. But if we say we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar. So we know John's not saying don't sin. He's saying, what's, what's the trajectory of your life? Is it toward my ambitions, my goals, my wants, my needs, my desires? Then maybe you don't know him. Because those who know him He's, he's always in the picture. And that's what John's trying to say. He's not trying to make you feel guilty like you need to act better. He's trying to say, do you know him? Because you say you know him, but you're still, you're still living in a lifestyle of sin. You're still living in un ungodly habits and attitudes. Listen to your speech. What are the things you laugh about? What do you do? With, there's still all these ungodly markers in your life, all John's saying is, be honest. Be honest. God's not looking for religious performers. He wants you to have the new life in Christ. And usually that happens when the Spirit uh, suddenly wakes you to the truth of who you are. And you go, oh, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Remember that that story of Jesus and the disciples, he was at the, uh, the praying wall in Jerusalem. Anybody been to Jerusalem, seen the praying wall where they're there and they're putting prayers in the wall? It's a powerful thing to see and know that that's been happening for thousands of years. And so Jesus had the disciples there and he said, now look, there's a Pharisee over there. And the Pharisee was standing pretty close to the wall and he noticed a tax collector that was standing way back at the fringes of the, the crowd and the Pharisee's prayer was, Lord, <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not like a sorry tax collector. I know you're pretty happy I'm here too, aren't you, Lord? The tax collector's prayer was, could even look at the wall, could even look to heaven, completely convicted about his sinful, selfish, greedy lifestyle, and with his eyes at the dirt said, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus quizzes the boys whose prayer got answered. 
So he's not, John's not trying to say, be, act more holy. He's asking the question, why is holiness not attractive to you? Why do you not long to be holy in your words, in your speech to your wife and to the people at work? Why are, why are you not wrestling with your thought life and your habits? Why are you, is your heart not moved with compassion for those who don't have what you have, for those who need Christ. If those, those are the questions John wants us to wrestle with, and he's writing to the church. So he's not writing to folks out there at the dollar store. He's writing to us and saying, some of us, remember the word, dear ones, verse 7, have been deceived. We've been deceived by cheap grace that says, oh, pray the prayer, we're saved by grace, so you're good, Jesus wasn't ever interested in converts. What did he say? Go and make disciples. Disciples. And disciples are people who say, I'm with you, Jesus. I'm in. Let's go. I want to follow you. How could he make that? How dare him ask for all of me? How can he ask for that? Here's that picture from the Passion. That's why. That's for you. He's not on that cross for his sins. Sandy Mason's sins are what put him there. Josh Watts' sins put him there. Your sins. Hebrews says, for the joy of knowing he would win you and defeat the lie of the devil in your life for the joy of knowing what was coming, he went through that. So because he did that for me, that's why I say to him, I'm yours. So if, if you hesitate to say to him, I'm yours, perhaps it's because you don't really believe that. That it's for you. It's for you. Thank you guys for that. Remember, uh, one of Bonhoeffer's definitions of cheap grace was forgiveness without repentance. Repentance means I don't take that lightly, what he did for me. And so I'm not going to say, thanks for dying for me, and I'm just going to keep living my sinful life. Repentance says, whoa, I don't want to live my sinful life in light of what you did for me, and you turn. You don't do it perfectly. You're going to stumble. John knows that. That's why we have this advocate, Christ, right now interceding for us. But there needs to be a turning away from your sin. You don't just tack Jesus on and keep going your way. When you are encountered by the living Christ who gave everything for you and the truth of that begins to hit, that's when you say, lead me, Lord. Where do you want me to go? And Matthew got up from his tax booth and Simon and Andrew dropped their nets and said, let's go, Lord. Wherever you're going, we want to go. Friend, today would be a great day for you to settle that issue. Maybe you recognize, you know, I've, I've, I prayed the prayer and I've kind of put forgiveness in my back pocket that I'm, I'm good to go, but 
I haven't really turned away from my old life. I'm still, still living my life. I'm not following him. The assurance of your salvation is in the pleasure the Holy Spirit gives you in following him. So it starts with knowing him. Do you know him? If suddenly that longing is growing, that's the Spirit of God in you right now. Saying, come to him. Come to him. Jesus, come to me. Come to me, he says. We're going to take communion together. and This will be a wonderful opportunity in the quiet for you and Jesus to just settle that. Lord, you're my, I'm yours. I'm yours. I repent of my sin and my selfish little pathetic life, and I want you and all that you have. Wherever you take me, across the globe, whatever you want to do, I'm yours. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, my only hope is that you are in the house and uh, that you would not let the devil deceive anyone who needs to hear the honest truth that they really haven't known you. Awaken them, Lord, now that Give them grace to see they need you and to cry out in faith today. May today, Lord Jesus, be a day of salvation. To the glory of your great name we pray. Amen.